Thank you, Clayton. It is good to be, to be back here today. I, um, it's been, I think, a couple of years since I've uh, been up, but it's, a, it's always a pleasure to be among uh, faces that I recognize and, and folks that I uh, know and hold dear. I have your uh, pastor in a class this year at uh, the seminary. He's taking, I don't know if you knew this, but he's taking an advanced degree. And we're taking a, uh, we're, we're doing a seminar together on the extent of the atonement. Believe it or not, there's something to talk about for two hours a week for uh, 16 weeks. And we're having a great deal of delight talking about those things. And they, those kinds of topics become even more special as we come near to the uh, Easter season. And we recognize that it's not merely a, an academic debate that we're having, uh, but rather it is a realization that Christ actually did something on the cross and uh, suffered greatly uh, for uh, your sins and for mine. So this week we will be celebrating uh, those events. Good Friday, I see you have a Good Friday service where we uh, celebrate or perhaps better commemorate the death of Jesus Christ and do celebrate the fact that he said it is finished uh, relative to uh, the uh, the sin uh, debt that we had. It's been paid uh, before before God. And then, of course, next Sunday is uh, the uh, sort of the, the the high Sunday of the Christian week, uh, of the Christian year, uh, when Christ rises from the dead, validating uh, what He has done as 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 something with which God was pleased and with and which God accepted. But the Passion Week, as as such, actually begins uh, today. Uh, we we tend to uh, overlook this Sunday. It is. Uh, Palm Sunday. It's not just April Fool's Day. It's it's also Palm Sunday. It is a it has been uh, uh, celebrated within the church for for many centuries. Although doesn't, there doesn't seem to be nearly as much attention uh, given to this day. In fact, I was looking in your uh, hymn book uh, this morning as I was looking for a closing hymn, uh, and uh, I was looking through. I said, okay, here's I'm looking through the life of Christ. Usually, hymn books are organized. Life of Christ, you've got the birth of Christ, the life of Christ, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ. And I was looking through, and usually there's a little section in there, the triumphal entry. But it went straight from the birth of Christ to the death of Christ. And it does, it's perhaps uh, emblematic of what we see in the uh, church at large, uh, a, a, a lack of, a lack of uh, interest in the uh, church calendar. And, but I'd like to at least draw attention uh, to this day, which is called by many Palm Sunday, in which we celebrate the triumphal entry of our Lord Jesus Christ into Jerusalem. Now, perhaps why this day is uh, overlooked is because it's a bit of a confusing event. Uh, we find uh, that there's good and there, there's great things happening and bad things happening simultaneously. And all along the way, when we see these fantastic things happening, there's always a little caveat. That's, that's stuck along next to it, saying everything's not quite the way it's supposed to be. We find, for instance, that uh, uh, when Jesus rides into Jerusalem, he is fulfilling this great prophecy of Zechariah 9, chapter 9, that he would be uh, riding the back of a donkey into the city of Jerusalem. And yet, we take a look at Zechariah 9, 10 to 13, and we find that something else is missing. Chapter 9, is, verse 9 is fulfilled, but verses 10 to 13, not so much. Verses 10 to 13 promise that God's going to destroy the enemies of His people Israel, like we read this morning in, uh, in Micah. But that doesn't happen. 
It says here that there's going to be the establishment of world peace. But that surely doesn't happen after Jesus comes and, and, and dies on the cross. In fact, we, we really enter into a very troubled period, military, militarily speaking, of, of, the, of world history. We find in Malachi 3.1 that suddenly the Lord himself will appear in his temple. Sounds like a wonderful event. And it was. He comes into the temple and he, and, and he overturns the tables of the money changers and, and reclaims a corner of the temple, as it were, his temple. But that we find then that in uh, Luke chapter 19, verse 44, that he predicts that they're not going to recognize the time of their visitation. The Messiah has visited the temple, but they didn't recognize the time of their visitation. And in fact, we discover that this temple, which he wrests from the control of these religious leaders who were abusing it, we find that he makes a prediction in verse 44 of Luke chapter 19 that stone after stone was going to be taken down until the entirety of, this, of the temple mount would be dismantled. And that happened just 40 years later. We find that uh, Jesus comes into the city and, and he holds the people at rapt attention. So much so that even though the leaders of Israel wanted to kill him, we find in, in Luke chapter 19, verse 48, that they could not because the people hung on his every word. We also find that, that Jesus uh, performs these, these great miracles. It, it almost is, appears as though he surgically selects specific miracles to do in order to correspond to the prophecies about the Messiah that are contained in the Old Testament. He's proving here that he is the Messiah, the King, the rightful heir to the throne of David. And in fact, on Palm Sunday, the little children recognized him. They were throwing palms on palm fronds onto the ground in front of him, acclaiming to him as king. This was rather dangerous for them. They, they, they're part of the Roman Empire there. The Romans didn't look kindly on usurper kings, people who came to, to claim the throne that was owned by the emperor and those he had appointed. Yet they were out there claiming, this Jesus, he is our king. Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna, save we pray, recognizing him. He was the Messiah that was not only going to save them from their sins, but he was going to save them from the tyranny of military oppression. And yet, we find in Luke chapter 19 that things were not the way that the people thought they were going to be. In fact, uh, we find even more attention given over to a single parable that takes place in Luke chapter 19 than we actually are given to the events that take place on this Palm Sunday. And that's because it's so confusing. What is Jesus doing here on Palm Sunday and what should we do with it? Let's take a look then at Luke chapter 19 and we're going to look at verses 11 through 27. Luke chapter 19, 11 to 27. I'm going to read these for you this morning. While they were listening to these things, Jesus went on to tell them a parable because he was nearing Jerusalem and they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. So there's the background. 
They think he's going to establish the kingdom. He's coming in in his triumphal entry. They think he's going to establish the kingdom. And he says, no, 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 that's not exactly what's happening here. And I'm going to tell you a parable because you are mistaken in your thinking. And he said this, a nobleman went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then to return. And he called ten of his slaves and gave them ten minas and said to them, do business with this until I come back. But his citizens hated him. They sent a delegation after him saying, We do not want this man to, be, to reign over us. When he returned after receiving his kingdom, he ordered that these slaves to whom he had given the money be called to him so that he might know what business they had done. The first appeared saying, Master, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good slave. Because you have been faithful in a very little thing, you are to be in authority over ten cities. The second came, saying, Your minor master has made five. And he said to him also, And you are to be over five cities. Then another came to him, saying, Master, here's your minor. I kept it hidden away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you, because you are an exacting man. You take up what you did not lay down and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, By your own words, I will judge you, you worthless slave. Did you know that I am an exacting man, taking up what I did not lay down and reaping what I did not sow? Then why did you not put my money into the bank? And having come, I could have collected it with interest. Then he said to the bystanders, Take this mina away from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. They said to him, Master, he has ten minas already. I tell you, to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who does not have, even that which he does, not, does have shall be taken away. But these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them in here and slay them in my presence. So we find here that, that Luke gives us, an exam, a, 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 by way of a parable, an explanation of what Jesus was doing and how we should respond. Hopefully you'll see, you, you can see the, the elements that these, these people who are involved in this story, and you can connect them to what's going on historically. Let's, let's look closely at what's going on. The king here, first of all, gives his subjects a mission. Okay? Remember, what, remember what we're saying here? Jesus says, I am the rightful king, I am about to be crowned king, but not yet. Something else has to happen first. And so he says, there is a nobleman who's not a king yet. He's a nobleman who needs to go into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then to return. Now, to us this may seem a bit unusual. But in the Roman world, no one simply assumed a kingdom. Okay? Uh, history tells us, in fact, that recently... Recently to this, these events here in the book of Luke, Herod the Great had died. And his son, Archelaus, was to reign in his stead. But he did not simply become king. He had to travel to Rome, to a far country, to receive his kingdom, and then to return. Okay, so, so while it seems a little bit unusual for us, this would have resonated very much with these original, these original hearers. They knew exactly what was going on. 
Jesus is announcing, I, the nobleman who is to be king, am going to a far country to receive a kingdom and then to return. I'm not going to become king immediately. Now, there's no doubt here that this nobleman in this story is a reference to Jesus Christ, who, according to Psalm 110, was going to ascend to the right hand of the throne of God until a time in which God would subdue his enemies under his feet, set Christ up over as, as throne of the world in the millennial kingdom as he returns in power and glory. So, Christ has been entitled by God to rule the entire world, but for a period of time, we are awaiting his return as the king. We find next, then, that there are responsibilities to fill. Verse 13, we find here that the nobleman gives each of his ten slaves, or servants here, a mina. <coughs> Excuse me. So what is a mina? Well, a mina is about three months' wages for a common laborer. Uh, we're getting into, we're in the midst of tax season, I guess, uh, right now. So how much money would that be? Well, uh, take, take your, take your, uh, take your, uh, what is, it, what is it, line 19 there that says what your AIG is, your adjusted, your adjusted gross income? Well, divide that by four. A little bit more math here. Divide that by four, and here's about the amount that you would expect a miner to be. About three months' wages for a common laborer. Okay. So why this amount? We're not sure. It doesn't seem like there's really any significance to this in the story. Uh, there's no real consensus as to why this amount is used. Probably it's just an, uh, an amount... Uh, for, sake, for the sake of the story. He simply gives a stipend to each person and gives a simple command. Do business with this money until I return. Make a profit with it. Invest it in whatever way you can. We also are tasked with a mission. That is, again, it's, it's not so much money that we should be thinking about here as the fact is that God has given us a task to do. He has given us a mission, which we might call the Great Commission, that is granted to us in several of the Gospels. Go, teach the nations, baptize them, teach them whatever I have observed, and lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. Okay? That's the Great Commission, the marching orders for the church. The king says, as he, the, the, the nobleman says, as he ascends to heaven, this is what you're supposed to do. This is how you are to occupy until I come. Do business until I come back with this mission that I have given to you. We also find that there is opposition to face. Verse 14. But his citizens hated him. They sent a delegation after him saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. Interestingly, if you take a look again at the annals of Roman history, you find that the Jews were quite frightened of Archelaus. Herod the Great had been a rather a bitter despot who had, who, had, who had destroyed many of the Jewish traditions and had killed many of the Jews. And now his son was about to take his place and he was worse than a dad. And so what they did is sent a delegation ahead of this man who was going back to Rome. They wanted to tell the emperor, we do not want this man to reign over us. So again, we look, at, we look at the history of the period and we discover this all resonates with the people who happen to be listening to Jesus as he gives this parable. They understand exactly what he's saying. 
There are many people in this world who do not want Christ to rule over them. Okay? And they are, they are pictured here by this delegation of citizens. And the fact is, we who are faithful servants of our Lord Jesus Christ must live among these citizens. That's what, that's our, that, is, that is our lot, right? We are the, the faithful servants of Christ, and we live among citizens of God's overarching kingdom, and it is interesting that he calls them that. We, we live among these citizens of his kingdom who do not want him to reign over them. And that's how we have to pursue the mission that Jesus Christ has given to us. So Christ might not yet be king over us in a direct rule of the world. He still is in charge, right? And it reminds me of the song in, in your hymn book. This is my Father's world. Oh, let me not forget that though the wrong seems oft so strong, God is the ruler yet. This is my Father's world. The battle is not done. Jesus who died will be satisfied and earth and heaven will be won. We look forward to that day when Jesus comes back as king in power and glory and sets things straight. And we find in this story that day arrives very quickly here in verse 15. The king returns as king. And what does he do? He assembles all of the servants together to make an accounting of their activities on his behalf. We too will give an accounting of our labors on behalf of Christ's kingdom. Now, we have an advantage though. We get to see the responses of these people and perhaps fix what we are doing incorrectly. So upon his arrival back to establish his realm, this newly appointed king orders his ten servants to appear consecutively before him and report on the business that they had done with a small investment that he had left with them. And we find here then three representative accounts of what these folks did. Now, why are there only three and not ten? Probably because we don't really need nine people saying pretty much the same thing. So we get two representatives, one who makes ten, one who makes five, one who makes nothing. Okay? So we find these three representative responses. The first servant has earned ten minus, which is quite impressive, I think you would have to say. This is a fabulous return of 1,000% on the initial investments. Quite remarkable. The second one comes, and he's made 500%. And the king rewards them appropriately. Uh, the one who has made 10 minus, or 10 uh, stipends, probably two and a half years' wages for the common, common uh, laborer, the king says to him, that's a great investment. You get 10 cities. To the one who's made five, you get five cities. And so uh, why, why is there a difference between... I think all of them receive a well done from the king. The fact is we all work at various levels and rates, and I don't think there's any hint here uh, that the guy who only got five uh, was somehow worse than the one who made ten. Uh, any more than perhaps the... Uh, the parable uh, of, of the soil, where we find that some soil gives 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold. The point is that it bore fruit. 
That makes it good soil. These are good servants of the Lord who had done the work of the kingdom in the absence of the king. So what can we learn uh, from, from, from these folks? Well, we've all been given talents. We've all been given abilities, ministries to serve, some of them bigger, some of them larger, some of them more visible than others, some of them perhaps a little bit quieter, a little smaller, a little bit more behind the scenes. But all of these contribute to the work of the kingdom. And I think there's two applications we can draw from this. You're expected to be faithful with whatever God has entrusted you to with. Whatever God has given to you, whatever place He has put you in, you have as your foremost obligation to promote the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. You must be gathering God worshipers for that kingdom, educating them, exhorting them, serving them, fellowshipping with them in the service of the one who will reign as king. It's your responsibility. Whether it's large or small, take what God has given to you and use it. And then secondly, you're going to be rewarded immeasurably for your service. In our, in our parable here today, the, the servant who turned three months' wages into two and a half years' wages, he receives vice regency over ten cities. He becomes a very powerful and wealthy citizen within the new order. It's not a meager reward. Now, what is the nature of our reward going to be? Interestingly, the Bible tells us very little about it. Uh, we, we find hints of crowns, but even there we're not sure... If, are these golden crowns, or, or is it the fact that we are crowned with life, or we are crowned with, with righteousness? And, and, and it, even that is, is something of a mystery. What exactly is our reward going to look like? I don't know. But with this parable as our guide, it's going to be immense. It's going to, it's going to make all that we have here in this earth look paltry by comparison. God wants us to be faithful with what He has given to us, and so we should be willing to do so because we are going to be richly rewarded. Unfortunately, there's also an unfaithful accounting as well. Another representative account here we find in this passage. Another servant begins in verse 20. He has no doubt been emboldened by the vast rewards that the other two have Received and false humility approaches the king and says, "This, sir, here is here is your mina. I've kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you are a hard man, an austere man, an exacting man. You take out what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. So this man really gives an excuse for not investing the money. It seems reasonable on the surface. He was afraid." But the worthless servant has overlooked a number of holes in his own argument. First, if it was fear that motivated his actions, it was not fear of the master. In fact, the master points this out quite clearly to him. Instead, his actions revealed a disdain for the master. In fact, Jewish custom of the day forbade the, the uh, taking of money and putting it into cloth or burying it. Why? Because that, that treated it too lightly. Apparently, this money was hastily buried to conceal the fact that he had received it. He didn't want anyone to know. He wasn't so much afraid of the master as he was afraid of the citizens around him who might have known that he was a servant of the king. 
Perhaps they feared the ridicule he might receive from the enemies of the king. And the king says, no, 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 no. You're not afraid of me. If you were really afraid of me, you'd have taken it to the bank and invested it. You you wouldn't even have to have been involved in the investment. Just put it in the bank and get whatever interest they're willing to pay you. You're not afraid of me. You're afraid of everyone else. And then he also explains what he thinks about the king. What does he say about the king? He's an exacting man. He's a hard man, an austere man, a harsh man. Well, really, this is an insult. He doesn't really even take the time to think about the bitterness that he is, that he is, he is, he is expressing here. He accuses his king of being dishonest. You say, what? what, what? I, didn't, I didn't see that. Well, sure it does. You take up what you did not lay down, and you reap what you did not sow. Think about it. What's he saying? Other people plant the crops and you steal them. Says it two times over. You're a thief. I don't like you. I don't trust you. You're not my master. So this man was no faithful servant of the king. He was an enemy in disguise, really. So we look then (coughs) at the king's response to this feeble excuse that the, 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 the servant offers. I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. If you really believed that I was harsh and dishonest, you would have been diligent to try to please me. You would at least have put it in a passbook savings account and got whatever little bit of interest you could have gotten. King is trapped. The king is trapped. Our worthless servant here in his words, he's declared him to be a hypocrite, a liar, a faithless servant who was actually a rebel against this man who would be king. So if I may draw the application to the present day, we are all awaiting the return of the king. And let me draw the following conclusion. If you claim to fear God, claim to fear God, come to church services, even preach in church services, but live as though you don't know the king. Pretend that you have no relationship to the king. Pretend that you are not a servant of the king. And and hide that fact. This tells you that your service for the king really is nothing more than disinterest in the coming of the king. It's a disdain for his causes. It, It labels the man who lives this way as wicked, worthless, faithless. Those are the words that were used. Wicked, worthless, faithless. And that is not a position that you or I would want to be in when we face our sovereign Lord when he returns as king. So then we come to the last four verses and we find the conclusion of this parable representative of the consummation of this age, the commencement of the next age, and in it we find the final fate of each participant. First of all, the true servants of the king are richly rewarded. Now much of this has already been detailed in verses 17 and 19. Uh, We find that this small bit of faithfulness that each one of these servants exhibits in the midst of opposition yields an exceedingly great reward. For true servants of Christ, the strain of carrying the banner for Christ, the tribulation you might face, the persecution, even death that you might face, because you are committed to the cause of Jesus Christ, will be trivial when the splendors of glory are unfolded for you. It will be worth it all when we see Jesus. Life's trials will seem so small 
when we see Christ, one glimpse of his dear face, all sorrows will erase. So, therefore, bravely run the race till we see Christ. Most of you in this room are struggling hard to advance God's causes. Many of you have put in long hours in the service of the church. Many of you who have faced opposition of various varieties as you live your life out for Christ. And God says here, there is a reward at the end. And, and, and let, lest there be confusion about what I meant when I, read, when I read the verse of that song here. The point here is not to just, you know, here, sometimes here, you, know, you, you, you tie, a, tie a knot at the end of the rope and hold on. I, I don't think that's the point here. The point is not to just to endure, but actually go out there and put it on the line. Because the reward is later. It's not now. What you have now might not be pleasant. And you might be able to hoard just a little bit of an investment. And what does God say? Put it out there on the line. Risk everything. It's an investment that is a great investment. A far better investment than the mega millions, right? This is an investment that has an incredible reward. So spend it all. Spend and be spent for the cause of Jesus Christ. Because that will give you the great reward at the end. That will give you the pleasure of hearing those words, Well done, good servant. I'll make you a ruler over these cities. Paul says much the same thing. Our momentary light affliction. That's how he describes his lot in life. Remember Paul? The Paul, the Paul, Paul, the guy who's been stoned twice, shipwrecked twice, beaten with rods, whips, left for dead on multiple occasions. He says, this momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. So what should we do with this little investment that Jesus has given to us? Take it. Use it. Invest it. Put it all out on the line for Jesus Christ, your King. And there's a reward at the end. Then in verse 27, the final judgment, perhaps the last verse, the one that we don't really want to read a whole lot, but it's there, so we have to deal with it. A final judgment for the enemies is meted out in a swift, violent slaughter of all those who stood against the king. I have no doubt, I, 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 I doubt that there are any outspoken enemies of the king in this room here this morning. Most, most tend not to come to the church services Occasionally you get an exception to that rule. But for the most part, you don't have the enemies of the king who come on Sunday morning. So I don't know that I'm necessarily talking to these outspoken opponents of Jesus Christ this morning. However, there is one, one uh, representative position here that I would like to deal with, and that is this faithless servant. Uh, we, we actually don't see what happens to the faithless servant. Well, all we know is that the... Faithful servants are richly rewarded. The enemies are slaughtered. We know that the reward that was supposed to go to this, uh, this, this servant who doesn't invest the money is taken away from him. But what happens to him? We don't, we don't actually see it. Does he, does he get into the kingdom? Or is he slaughtered along with the enemies? And, 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 and the Bible doesn't say. So what are we supposed to do with this? Well, let me conclude 
the, the, that he has revealed himself to be an enemy of the kingdom, and I'd like to suggest here that he probably was numbered among them and was slaughtered along with them. Because upon his feeble attempt to answer his master, rather than calling him faithful, he calls him faithless. He calls him wicked. He calls him worthless. This is the conclusion that the king has against this person who claims to be a servant of Jesus Christ, but gives no evidence of it. And this, perhaps, is the warning that I must give as a result of this passage. There is no category. You know, we, 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 we all look forward to the day when Jesus Christ will say, well done. And we say, well, maybe I won't get the well done, but maybe I'll get the, you know, pretty good job. We'll let you in on probation. That's, that's not one of the categories here. It's either a well done or slaughter. And so I want to at least give this warning to those of you who might perhaps be here who might not think it's too much of a problem to be a, a secret follower, follower of Jesus Christ, one who makes no investment at all in the kingdom. Think it's in a, you're, you're in a precarious position, in, in a place where you might be described by the king when he comes faithless, worthless, wicked. And so I want to re remind you, uh, all of you, of that possible situation in which you could, could be. So this text here reveals the king has given his subjects a mission. He's going to demand an accounting. He will then mete out his just recompense for the actions taken by all parties involved. What you do with your brief amount of time and your tiny amount of resources during this period that you have until the day you die is going to determine what your standing is in heaven. That's the message here. And it is a both a relief and a warning that God will justly recompense not only his faithful servants, but also his enemies. And so it behooves us this morning as we examine this text and examine ourselves within it, how are we doing as servants of Jesus Christ? That's the question for the morning. Lord, we ask this morning as we, as we look at this passage that you would find us faithful, that you would uh, discover uh, in each one of us in this room a faithfulness, a commitment, a willingness to, to make sacrifices, to place things out on the line for the cause of Jesus Christ. And Lord, we do look forward to that day when, when you will return and that we, we ask uh, that you would cause each of us to aspire and to receive that accolade from you. Well done, you good, you faithful servant. Lord, I ask that you would help us to that end. In your name we pray. Amen.